Well, hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to have you with us again this week. As the year gets underway, we're a few episodes in. And Philip, as I think about the year unfolding, one of the things that's on my radar is the Nexus Conference. It's a great conference, yeah. Uh, It's on Monday the 11th of March. It's going to be held at Village Church in Annandale, and uh, go to nexusconference.sydney, I think is the name. Anyway, you can Google it where you have to go to find out all the details and so on. But it's particularly on my radar, not only because it's a really enjoyable time each year to get together with evangelical ministry friends and to hang out together and to stretch each other, but they've got me giving a talk this year. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. And so I've been reading and thinking. About... That's good. If you're going to give a talk, read and think beforehand, yes. <laughs> it's a good first step. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully sometime in advance of the day before. What's it going to be on? Well, the whole conference is about theology and practice. And it's kind of acknowledging that many of the issues we have today in evangelicalism and in our churches, the things we grapple with and struggle with, are not so much debates about theology, about the person of Christ or the inspiration of Scripture or about some big theological question, they're very often about how that theology sort of works its way out into practice. Uh, For example, you could say that the the whole debate that we've had in our churches about the place of women and ministry is a debate about practice, about what we do, what's, what's the appropriate step. And people who have a very similar theology, say a a complementarian biblical kind of theology about men and women will still land in different places and have quite fierce debates about what that should look like in practice. Yes, although some of the debates in practice, especially you see in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the presenting problem is practice, which Paul shows you is actually built out of theological differences. Exactly. And so you can't just assume that a practice difference has no relationship to theology because sometimes... It's the expression of different theologies. It almost always is the expression of some principle or theological stance or some way that some mode of reasoning is leading you to a different practice. Sometimes the difference in practice might be purely a matter of history, context or history or yeah. the circumstances that bear upon it. So mm. you could work from the same theology to slightly different practices, of course. But many of the differences we do have are practical ones, and we often differ about how our theology is going to work our way towards that practice. Another example would be how how we structure our churches. There's long been an historical difference between evangelical reformed uh, brothers as to how we say have church polity, whether we should have a congregational polity or Presbyterianism or Anglicanism, how we should structure things, how we should govern things and so on. And in our circles at the moment, we're having a bit of a debate about what is the nature of pastoral oversight and structure and authority. Is it okay for pastors to be in charge of priorities and kind of outcomes as opposed to in charge of congregations? Or is there something theological or biblical that means we should have a pastor and a congregation, have congregational model and so on? And these practical sort of outworkings all come back to in the end, some sort of theological stance. So what is it that you're talking on? I'm talking about how we read the Bible and think theologically and work our way towards practice because it struck me that some of the differences we have over these issues stem from a different method of working our way from the Bible towards practice. What kind of different methods? Well, historically, and one of the issues I'm thinking through 
in advance of the talk is how much history to go into. It could take up the entire talk to talk about a history on this because it's it's been a constant part of our history. But one way of illustrating the issue is to go back and think about the regulative versus normative approaches to how you apply the Bible or use God's voice in Scripture as the way to direct your action. And historically, in our Reformed and Evangelical world, that's been kind of one sort of way of thinking about the different methods people use to apply the Bible. Okay, well, let's assume that our dear listener and reader doesn't know what those two phrases mean. I think that's a fair assumption. And so <laughs> tell us what the regulative one is and then contrast it, tell us what the normative one is. Now, these are kind of tendencies um, and they've been given these labels and they refer to historical movements and controversies within Reformed evangelicalism. But broadly speaking, um, people who have adopted what's been called the regulative principle see the Bible as regulating, that's where you get the name, regulating quite closely what we should do in church. Uh, the assumption is that God cares very much about how he's worshipped, um, as seen in the Old Testament, and about the detailed regulations and descriptions of how everything should be organised in Old Testament worship. And surely, uh, the argument goes, if the New Testament is even better and more superior in every way through Christ, surely God cares just as much, if not more, about how we should structure ourselves and how we should, how we should be worshipped in a Sunday service, and so has provided regulations, rules, laws within the New Testament that should frame the way we run our church, church services. And so what we do practically ought to be driven quite closely and tightly by what is specifically commanded to be done in the New Testament. Regulated. Okay. Regulated. Well, what's normative then? Normative says, well, yes, God does speak to us in Scripture and we must obey his commands, but there's a whole series of things in which God provides general kind of principles and directions, but no specific commands. There are things that kind of norm what we do and provide general guidelines, but uh, there's a fair bit of wiggle room, if I can use a modern phrase, for us to figure out what ought to be done. And then there's a degree of liberty and freedom, and there's not such a tight regulation of what should happen in churches. Okay, so take it up on musical instruments. Yes. So I've been to a church where there are no musical instruments because there's no instruction to have musical instruments in the Bible. So a, a really strong regulative principle kind of tradition would say, yes, uh, singing is, is, a, is something that's commanded to be done, and so we should definitely sing, and so to not sing would in fact be disobedient. But there's no mention of musical instruments, um, none are mandated, there's no examples of musical instruments in the New Testament, we're not commanded to use them, therefore we should assume that since it's not commanded, and since God obviously wants to tell us in reasonable detail what we should do, then they shouldn't be used. Um, another example, perhaps a more interesting one in terms of our own history, those of us who are in the Anglican heritage, was the debate at the time of the Reformation about the use of vestments and ceremonies and so on that carried over from Roman Catholicism. What do you mean by vestments? The fancy um, robes that, that ministers sometimes wear. Right. And so some Reformed Anglicans, the Puritans, wanted to say... There's nothing in the Bible about these things happening in the New Testament. And what's more, they're unhelpful and unedifying. Uh, we should get rid of them and, um, and also make other further reforms to the church and sort of keep going in our reforms. 
Um, on the other side, the more normative principle, as it came to be called, Anglicans argued that since we're free to either wear certain robes or not, they're neither here nor there in one sense, they're not either sinful or they're neither commanded nor forbidden, then if the circumstances make it expedient and useful to wear them, it's fine. You can just wear them. And these two sides struggled to understand each other in some respects because they shared a great deal. They were both reformed Calvinists. They were both very much on the same side. They both thought that the Pope was the Antichrist and they were both very much reformed Anglicans. But one side, the regulative side, kind of wanted to hear God's voice directing more explicitly and clearly what should be done. The other side, the, the normative side, believed in God's revelation, of course, but saw a, a larger place, a bigger place for human reason and figuring stuff out and kind of expediency and working out the details. Okay, well, let's work now, on... There's a rough summary. Now, this is complex, um, yeah. but that's a rough summary of the two tendencies and how historically they okay, kind of I've, played I've, their way out. I've grasped how you're using the words and what we're meaning. Now, to help us then, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the regulative side? Well, you would say, first of all, that the regulative thinkers had a very deep respect and desire for God's voice to be heard in all our decisions. Uh, one of their well-known writers at the time, uh, Cartwright, uh, in, his, in his controversy with Whitgift and with Hooker and so on, one of his key points was that he understood what the normatives were saying, that to say that something is positively commanded is logically the same as saying it's, it's not, not commanded, it's that it's not repugnant to the word. But he said, I don't want to shut out the voice of God. The the regulative guys had this sense that like God was with the children of Israel and directing them and leading them and speaking to them, so he was with his people now, living and active, directing and speaking them. It's not as if he'd given a set of regulations and laws that were sort of general and then it was up to us entirely with our reason just to figure everything else out. So their strength was a desire to hear God's voice and be directed by God, I think, in the immediacy of life, in the midst of everything. And their weakness? I think twofold. I think because of that desire and because of, of a failure to see how the New Testament itself describes the difference between the Old Testament and its laws and ceremonies and the new life in Christ, I think they were too determined to find within the New Testament a set of laws and regulations about church life that was similar of a similar level and detail as Old Testament laws. They, they decided that they, those laws should be there and so found them. And the great strength of the normative case against them was, well, it's actually quite tenuous to say that this, this, system, this detailed system you've come up with is, um, is actually exegetically there in the New Testament. And so I think their weaknesses were partly to have too strong a view that the New Testament would be a set of laws like that, like the Old Testament was. Maybe a too strong a reliance on law and command as the way that God spoke to us and directed us almost exclusively, and therefore an overly tight, overly specified view of what was commanded. So I think that was their weakness. Does that make right. sense to yeah, you? Sure, Man. sure. Well, okay, we'll go back to the normative. What's the strength of the normative? I think they were able to pick holes in the regulative guys, their, their system that they derived out of the New Testament, say for why Presbyterianism was the form of government, for example, or those kinds of things. I think they were fairly easily able to pick holes exegetically in that program. And so one of their strengths was um, a, more, a more balanced and 
probably better reading of, of how God spoke in the New Testament in those terms, um, and a better recognition that God, that our freedom in Christ and what God had done for us in Christ meant that we were required to think and work things out, that law and command and regulation wasn't the only mode of, of our thinking and action and response in Christ. So they were, I think they were right to point that out and to lean on that um, and to realise that things would be worked out that way in different contexts. Um, their weakness... Yeah, I th- yeah, go to their weakness, because I can hear weakness in the arguments you put forward for normative. Yeah. Yeah. That really opens the can of worms. You can go in any direction from there, can't you? Well, potentially. It means that there's an overconfidence in the ability to, for human reason to work things out. So Hooker argues, for example, that since he was the great opponent of the regulative guys at the time of the Reformation, a famous Anglican um, that many people try to claim as their own, uh, fascinating, he's one of those sort of people, Hooker pointed out, or Hooker strongly believed that the the capacity of humanity under God to work out from nature and from reason what ought to be done was very strong. He was almost like in the sort of tradition of Thomas Aquinas and that kind of confidence in natural human reason to figure things out. That was their weakness and his weakness. Quite a strong belief that if humans had figured out, if, if the church and the government together had figured out that this was a decent and orderly way to take place, then we should accept that that's the case, unless Scripture gave us a really strong command to say that we couldn't. It built into this then will come the problem of grace and faith against law. That is, even, say, the normative ones who would move down towards the liberal-minded people can, once setting up their church practices become regulative, can't they? They themselves could not so much be saying, well, I've got this from the Word of God, but they can over time say, this is the way the church is done and you must do it this way because this is the way it's done. And so that freedom that they took for themselves can easily turn into the regulations of other people. Well, this is the irony of the historical circumstance in which this whole debate took place in the Reformation. But that's exactly the case. The normative people, which in our minds we associate with freedom, wiggle room, not so tight, they were actually on the side, they were called the conformists because they were on the side of the government and the state church who were saying, Elizabeth I was saying, this is the way you must do church. We're going to let you have a Reformation in England and teach Reformation doctrine, but you still have to wear all the robes and you still have to have certain ceremonies and you still have to keep... In other words, the state was mandating that these things should take place. And so the normative position was, well, since the state's telling us we have to do it and it's a matter of freedom, then we have to obey the state. And therefore, you other guys who, in con- by conscience really do not want to wear these things and think they're wrong. You have to wear them or you're out. I'll give you another totally different illustration. Okay. I was conducting a student church which was very laid back in clothing styles and the rest, young people, young Australians in summer, and I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 8 to 11 about Christian liberty. And so one Sunday night I wore my suit and tie. It really freaked them out. It really upset them uh, that suddenly... The freedom to be able to wear a T-shirt and shorts was the rule. and The, the norm I, that shouldn't be uh, overturned. Yeah, the norm was regulated. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little, it gets a little confusing, doesn't it, at times? It, it can because 
in the end, you have an authority somewhere that ends up asserting itself. And whether on the regulative side, the authority is in a set of regulations, laws, uh, and commands that you've derived from Scripture, that this must regulate the way we act and you cannot. If it ends up being on the more normative side, there's some principles, but we figure a lot out by human reason and tradition. That human and reason and tradition can very easily take on its own authority and stature such that it, it squashes all uh, kind of non-conformism. And in fact, that's, that's what ends up strangely happening um, in Anglicanism in our circles, in, in our recent history, in your history, um, that, for example, your kind of move in, say, the 1980s to stop wearing Anglican robes was opposed by the Anglican hierarchy on with the kind of argument that the normative principle people would have used. That is, this has been the tradition forever. It's a matter of decency and order. It's neither here nor there. You can wear them. You cannot wear them. There's freedom. But since it's been a matter of tradition and decency and the nature of church tradition forever, you should not lightly get rid of these things. You should retain these things for the sake of order. Yes. Whereas you had a, a different biblical principle that was driving well, you. Different, and different historical principle. Yeah. That is, um, these have been retained, for example, the surplus, uh, the white kind of dressing gowny looking thing. For nighty, the nighty as we used to call it. Yes. The white nighty. That was retained on the grounds that it was not a clerical garment because the lay choir members used it but when the lay choir members no longer use it then that which wasn't a clerical garment becomes a clerical garment the same with the clerical collar the clerical collar was a 19th century gentleman's collar ties such as we had in the 20th century which mercifully we're getting rid of in the 21st century but the tie was a 20th century late 19th 20th century invention but the the, the proper attire for a, an 18th 19th century gentleman was to be just wearing a stiff collar now everybody changed except the clergy especially in church and so in the end that which was a collar that indicated nothing other than you're a gentleman became the sign of being a minister. And so suddenly that which, it doesn't matter whether you wear it or not, became you must wear it or you're not doing the right thing. So history changes things as well as biblical principles. An issue like clothing, it's changed like that. And it's fascinating that if you go back to those original Reformation debates, the Puritan nonconformist, more more regulative side of the debate, and and opposing imposing these two kind of names on them does simplify a very complex debate. The Puritan regulative side was arguing for getting rid of vestments and ceremonies because they weren't edifying, because of because although they were visual practices, they weren't words. It wasn't teaching. It wasn't a doctrine. But the practice, they argued, in a way similar to, say, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, what you actually do with meat offered to idols, and that was a, a passage they debated often, what you do can have an offence, can give offence, can cause stumbling, uh, can have an, an action can have an effect, a symbol can have an effect. Yes, I'm not worried about... I, I would differ in terms of not worrying about causing offence so much as teaching that to shout loudly you believe in one thing but at the same time practice the exact opposite 
by and large, people follow your practice. They don't hear your shouting. They don't hear your logic or your argument. And so, you know, point downwards and tell people to look up and they'll nearly all look down because that's where you pointed. Exactly. Although it does shade over into the idea of offence or the effect of your or the stumbling or the effect of, of what you're saying with your actions when it comes to, say, the non-Christian. So there are various things, various practices that that we might change or have changed within our church circles in the last 30 or 40 years that were changed because of the effect and overall message they sent and sent out to the non-Christian visitor. No, the offence, I never saw the offence being with the non-Christian visitor. I saw the offence with the church-going visitor, the church-going non-Christian, the, the, the bishop of another diocese, the people who had turned what was a normative freedom into a regulatory necessity. They were the people who were offended. Hmm. Um, the non-Christian comes into a church and, well, what is, is. So offence is probably not, the, you're right, it's probably not the right category then to say the, in the kind of all things to all men kind of category of 1 Corinthians 9, if you're adjusting your clothing or you're adjusting something for the sake of the non-Christian person so as not to offend them in that sense, um, it was under that kind of discussion that some of the changes that took place in the 80s and 90s happened. Um, to to have church in a form of language that, that the average non-Christian would understand. To, yes, to, uh, to the, not use use of, the use of overheads or the use of powerpoints, the use of of drum sets in church buildings, and the use of you know microphones and amplification. There's a whole host of ways in which we did church, which I don't think the non-Christian thought one way or another. If they'd not been to church before, this was their first experience. They didn't know it was. It was abnormal, unusual, modern, or anything, just what they experienced. But for those whose church life was the cultural norm of their childhood, any change was offensive, and therefore they didn't hear the lessons of what the change was about. Mm, that's a good point. And it, it's interesting that what you're talking about there or what you're modelling is there's a theological principle that's driving me, but I still have to think through in the context and situation I'm in how that should drive my practice. Yes. It's, it's not as if there was a, a regulation or rule that I could look to that could tell me exactly how to dress no. or exactly what to do. There was a, a thought process. There was what you yes. might call a deliberation, if you wanted to use ethics language, that then landed in a form of practice that was yes. driven by a theological principle. And we're dealing with, a, in one sense, a pretty trivial thing, what people wear. You take the ministry structuring of a church. The real big principles, commitment to the gospel, seen in changed lives, reflecting in wholesome relationships... What title a person has, what authority in their constitutional status within a church, they're not in the scriptures. At that point, I want to be regulative. <laughs> I want to say the person must believe the gospel, must be living that out, and in living it out will be treating others within the church with that same sacrificial love that we see in our Lord and Saviour Jesus. That is what is important. Now, I still may need to give them a title. I still may need to give them 
a job description or something or other. But that's the big one. The character and convictions, they're the big ones, which you can overlook by having a a structural system, calling them deacons or calling them presbyters or whatever term you may be using. And so I found, for example, that the parish council legal structures of the Diocese of Sydney did not really help in the infrastructure of Christian leadership within our church. It was a useful system for property, for finances, for accountability, for a whole range of things. But in terms of pastoring the congregations in small groups and things like that, we ran a completely different system. Most churches did. You know, you didn't become the youth leader or the Sunday school superintendent by being on parish council. That was a different system altogether operating. And so you have to work on first principles from the Bible to work out the pragmatics of how to run a church. And working from those first principles, and this kind of is starting to get towards an alternative or, or another way of thinking about this question that perhaps is more useful than these two historical categories, which have their strengths but weaknesses as well and limits. In working out which theological principles to apply and how they apply and and how I might start to think my way towards that, we have in the apostles an example. Yes. Because the apostles frequently say, not just do what I do or obey my commands, but look at my faith, look at my teaching, look at my theology, and look at my life and my example. And look at how those two are connected. Yes. Look at how in my life and practice, theological principle drives practice. Yes. And you go do the same. Yeah, well, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, 8 to 11, 1. The conclusion is, I do all things in, for others that they may be saved. And in this regard, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. <laughs> so the, the debate of whether you do or do not eat meat, that has or has not been to The key principle he's working at is the salvation of other people, laying down your own life, putting yourself out for other people's salvation. It's love that builds up not knowledge that puffs up. It's from 8.1 through to 11.1. The argument is still the same principle. And you're getting an object lesson in how that argument happens. Yes, by look at my life. Look at my life and look at how I've reasoned. Look look at which theological principles I've brought to bear on understanding these idolatrous things. On being paid as an apostle in Chapter 9 or having my wife travel with me in Chapter 9 and so on. And on and on through the apostles, I'm, I'm, the letters, I'm thinking of towards the end of 2 Timothy, for example, where Paul says, look, there's these terrible examples of people who are going from bad to worse, but you've seen me, you've seen my faith and my life and my practice and my doctrine and my persecutions. That's what you should follow. 2 Timothy, in chapter 3 there, the hardworking farmer, the soldier, the athlete, and then he says, think about these things and God will give you understanding. That's sort of two around two chapter 2, verse 4. Five, four, or five, something like that. that. Yeah, that's the right-hand page, left-hand column. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> well, I know it's just after two Timothy two two, but so it's, it's just it's after that. thinking. Yeah, it, it's that is. He doesn't say, "Well, that's the end of it," mm. right? He actually that opens up how you are to think, but you are to think, and God will give you understanding. Exactly. Um, likewise, you could say. Um, 
uh, sort of a little theme verse on this in, in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, think about these things. Whatever is pure, what is yes. true, whatever yes. is four, noble. Eight. Yes, 4, 8. That's mm-hmm. Ponder, think about these things. And then the next verse is connected. It's not always connected in our translations, but... Which things, these things I'm talking about that you should think about, you've also seen in me, in my, yes. you've learned from me yes. and my practice. Yeah. Well, the apostles model this. When they come to all the issues of church life in Corinthians or in Timothy, it's not just, oh, you've got these issues. Let me tell you, here's what I command. Do this. Don't be factionalistic. Stop doing that. It's not just a set of rules to follow, nor is it just um, you should be able to figure this out within the context of your life, go and reason about it. There's a movement of thought from here are the theological principles. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that ought to drive you to think a completely different way and act a different way. And so um, in a sense, that approach, which let's, I might call it the apprenticeship principle, say, of apprenticing mm-hmm. ourselves to not just the apostolic commands and conclusions, as important as they are, I must obey those, but the whole way they think about their way to those so that we can do likewise. And that means that different churches will come to very different practices Yes, because of their environment, their context, their history, their whole range of reasons as to how best in their circumstances to put these principles into practice, although there are still a range of limitations. So... Several times, so I think it's in 1 Corinthians 7, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is saying, this is our rule for all the churches and we know no other. Interestingly, <laughs> those passages are about the, the ministry of women and leadership in the church, which all the churches have ignored. <laughs> that is the, the one area where there is a explicit regulative practice is the one that is being ignored by people. But Do you mean in Paul's time? Well, now? Paul says, this is my rule for all the churches, yes. and today people are ignoring it, which is kind of strange. Regular, there's not many regulative practices like that, explicit ones, that this is what you are to do. I mean, the whole of 1 Timothy is training Timothy how to behave in the church. Which is the household of the living God, yes. 14, 15. It's not just simple rules and regulations. It's understanding the theology of ministry properly. But that understanding will not lead to total anarchy, total liberalism. There will be a great similarity between people who come from the same theological understanding. Because we're apprenticed to the same master. Absolutely. And we'll keep thinking our way to the similar conclusions from the same theological principles. We'll keep following our... our, By the master, I mean the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks through his apostles. Yes. And it means that if there's an overall weakness in the regulative normative debate, it's that for both sides, there's a little too much reliance on law and command as the mode by which God directs us. On the one hand, on the regulative side, it's to try and find those commands and maybe try too hard to find commands and find too many. And on the normative side, it can be to kind of limit the commands and therefore say, great, right, we're pretty much free to do what we want so long as we're not transgressing one of those. And in neither case is there a sufficient um, sense of, of wanting to follow the apostolic uh, in the, the apostolic footsteps and to think that way, to think the way and act the way Paul thinks and acts. That's right. It's, again, external debate that is being imposed upon the Scriptures 
rather than reading from the scriptures into what we should like be a, doing. Like an external framework. You mean, yes. Like a, a yes. Set, yes. And the scripture, the scripture is living and active and powerful and it will direct us in ways that our presupposition assumptions will not be happy with. And so it has that problem. As you went through, by the way, I, I remember you mentioned scripture and tradition and reason, the reason which was famously called the three-legged stool. But of course, it's always was a failure in that regard because the three legs are not the same length. Because the scriptures are not the same in their authority as tradition or reason. Tradition or reason must be under the scriptures. And so it's really a one-legged stool with a couple of little bits sinking on the side. No, it's not the metaphor then, is it? It's not it a doesn't stool. work. <laughs> because... It's a relational metaphor. It's the voice of the living God who That's speaks right. to us and through this word. Yes, it's through the scriptures. And so that is how, whether we regulate or whether we just are normative, it's got to be the scriptures that we're talking about. That in the end teach us when and how we should be tightly controlling our behaviour and obeying yes. an explicit command and when we should be thinking our way towards practice in, That's the, right. in the way the apostles do. Yeah. Philip, this has been helpful. It's helped me sort of work some of the ideas through. Hopefully it'll all be in better shape by March the 11th. By March the 11th with Nexus. It's a great conference here in Sydney. Uh, I presume it's videoed and streamed around the world. It is. Uh, video. I think it is streamed this year. All those details will be online. I can't remember. I remember one year we, we didn't stream it recently because we were trying to encourage everyone just to come in person. Because whether it's streamed on, if you're outside Sydney, I think it will be streamed. But it's a great idea to come and be there because the great value of the day is it's a day to talk together. Yes. Hear some stretching talks and then to natter about them together over lunch and to catch up with each other um, and to push each other. And there's some other great speakers this day. Um, say other great speakers. Yeah, makes, other great speakers. Other great speakers. Saying, there are other yes. speakers who are great. Who will have prepared. <laughs> Tom Habib speaking, Mike Leet speaking, Phil Colgan will be speaking. Great. So um, come and hear, hopefully, the, the better organised and more thought through version of our conversation on March the 11th. Good. So, okay. How about I pray for you? Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this uh, conference coming up. Thank you for Tony thinking through these issues and researching and taking us back to the historical context from which uh, our debates have arisen and helping us to face up to the pragmatism, the pragmatics of being in church and church life together and challenging us to try and think biblically, think theologically about how we do what we do. So help us, Father, in our thinking in these areas, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.